The Speaking of Cults podcast is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from it is at the user's own risk. The views, information, or opinions expressed by the host and guests are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute medical or other professional advice. Hello, and welcome to the Speaking of Cults podcast, uh, and I'm your host, Chris Shelton. Uh, this week, you ca- I'm going to deliver a bit of a monologue. I did my first ever uh, case of uh, expert witness testimony uh, this last week, and um It was incredibly educational and interesting as an experience, and I'm not going to share any details about what occurred because that's not anyone else's business but what happened in the courtroom. However, I am going to discuss something that uh, had to do with what we were, what I was giving testimony about, and that is online cyber stalking, cyber harassment, and digital coercive control. These are all three terms that are roughly synonymous but have some differences. There's sort of a Venn diagram of connection between these different concepts. Uh, In other words, there's a lot of overlap. But they are uh, things that we can discuss in terms of definitions and prevalence and uh, why do these things happen? What are the motivations or reasons or justifications for this kind of behavior? Uh, Of course, this should be rather obvious to my ongoing audience how this relates to cultic activity and and what cult leaders and cult members can get up to both inside while members are inside the cult and after they leave. There can be uh, Um, incidents of all of these things in and out of a cult situation. And of course, what can we do about it? What sort of uh, services, resources, uh, legal roads do we have, uh, avenues do we have to fight back against any of this kind of behavior. This is a not super well studied. This has been studied to a degree more so now than ever before, um, but it's a fairly recent phenomenon uh, based on real world phenomena, stalking, harassment, following people around, being an unwanted or nuisance presence or even dangerous and overbearing presence in somebody's real world life has been something that human beings have been dealing with ever since, you know, for 30,000 years of our societal development and, and, and growth, right, and experience. But The cyber world has only been a relatively new invention, and so that behavior translating over into the virtual world is something that has only really been studied here and there uh, over the last 20 years. But like I mentioned, we have more and more studies of this more recently, and and from those studies is where I drew this information that we're going to go over today. So let's go ahead and get right to it. Um, And I've got a lot of... Uh, papers for my uh, listeners to uh, to hear about here today of uh, some statistics and percentages and numbers and things we're going to go over, uh, as well as first off, let's cover some definitions. What is it that we are talking about exactly? Um, 
And I want to put this note up at the very beginning of the show just to be super, super clear about the numbers and figures and statistics and stuff that I'm going to throw around. These are general estimates and may not capture the full scope of online bullying, cyber stalking, and cyber harassment due to underreporting variations in definitions and changes in technology and online behavior over time. What was maybe happening 20 years ago has changed over time as tools and uh, resources become more available to the stalkers and to the predators to, say, find people's addresses or track them down or get their personal information. It has become easier now than ever before for people, for bad actors, to be able to get hold of that information. Uh, Mostly, by the way, by taking advantage of good actors, good sites, places where people are trying to reconnect or places Places where people are trying to find genealogical information or, um, you know, information about their uh, relatives or their past or high school reunion things. I mean, there's so many different places that people go to reconnect or find other people that were significant in their lives. Well, it turns out that uh, bad actors, stalkers, harassers, cults, etc., can use those same services deceptively to find out people's personal information and use it against them. So these kinds of things make it difficult to say that we have solid statistical information you know from 2000 forward uh on all of these different behaviors and that's why they sort of merge and and uh you know mix up between them cyber stalking cyber harassment and digital coercive control are all forms of online abuse and manipulation that can have serious psychological and emotional impacts on victims These phenomena are not limited to any specific context, but they can certainly manifest within cultic activities where manipulation and control are often prevalent. So when we're talking about cyber stalking, uh, this involves the repeated use of electronic communications to harass, intimidate, or frighten an individual. This can include sending threatening emails or messages, monitoring someone's online activity, or even tracking their physical location through GPS. In a cultic context, cyberstalking might be used by leaders or members to keep tabs on dissidents, ex-members, or anyone perceived as a threat to the group's beliefs or practices. For example, cult leaders might employ cyber-stalking tactics to monitor and intimidate former members who have left the group. This has been codified in some groups like Scientology where they have a name for it. It's called Fair Game. And that doesn't just include online activity. That includes all of the things they do in the real world and virtual world to go after and stalk, harass, harass, intimidate, threaten, and basically be complete jerks to former members. Uh, This happens across the boards with cults and is not just isolated to Scientology and its fair game tactics, though. This is something that every single cult does in one fashion or another uh, as part of the package of being a cult. Now, cyber harassment refers to the use of digital platforms to repeatedly send offensive, threatening, or abusive messages or or images to an individual. This can take the form of online bullying or trolling or spreading malicious rumors or lies about the victim. In cultic activities, cyber harassment might be directed towards individuals who speak out against the group or its practices. Once again, we have, you can see easily here the, uh, the overlap. 
Um, cult members or leaders may use online platforms to attack and discredit critics or ex-members, attempting to silence dissent and maintain control over the group's narrative. And this is where cyber harassment can actually take form with existing cult members. They can be socially pressured or harassed online as well as in the real world to you know, bend the knee, comply, conform, do what the cult or the uh, cult leader demands. And of course, we see this in online cult models all the time these days, where people are only connected with their other cult members through virtual platforms or message boards and things like that. And you can have harassment campaigns happen against individuals who might be straying from the true path, just as much as you could have cyber harassment occur against former members. And then finally, there's this term, digital coercive control. And this is a fairly new term. Um, coercive control is, all, is used almost exclusively in academia and in, and in uh, scholarly circles to refer to domestic situations or um, intimate partner violence situations where coercive control is physical and non-physical methods of intimidation, harassment, control, manipulation, and... Um, all in an effort to, you know, uh, again, the anatomy is isolate, manipulate, and control. Well, if you can accomplish those things through virtual means or digital means, then you have digital coercive control. And, uh, of course, with the way that I talk about and have studied this material and the way it was taught to us, is that coercive control actually is a set pattern or habits or, or set of behaviors that can exist not just in intimate partner violence or domestic situations or, or domestic partnerships, but can also happen in gangs or cults or groups of any kind or size, as well as in the realm or domain of human trafficking. And all of what we're talking about here very much applies to how people have been sub sort of subsumed into and taken control of for purposes of trafficking them. Uh, so digital coercive control involves the use of technology to exert power and control over another person in a relationship. This can include monitoring their communications, restricting their access to information or resources, or using threats or manipulation to influence their behavior. In cultic contexts, digital coercive control tactics might be employed by leaders to maintain dominance over followers. Again, we're having overlap in these things. Uh, for example, cult leaders might closely monitor and control their members' online interactions, restrict their access to outside information, or use social media to enforce the group's norms and rules and guidelines and isolate people from dissenting points of view. Isolation is not just locking somebody up in a room. It can be isolating their sources of information or their uh, sources of finance and things like that. Um, now, in cults, these online abuse activities can exacerbate or can contribute to the already skewed power dynamics that are uh, already part of the group. That's, that's part of what makes a cult a cult is that too much power is invested in the leader and no power is given down to or uh, invested in the followers. 
So these are tools, these three things that we're talking about, cyber-stalking, cyber-harassment, digital coercive control, are really just more tools in the toolkit for the cult leader or leadership to, uh, or predators at all, uh, individual predators, to isolate, manipulate, and control. Um, yes, and of course, furthering the dependence upon the predatory leader. Right? That's what you want to do. It's all about keeping the person under the sway or control of the nefarious <laughs> leaders. Um, now, how prevalent is this? Is this? Now, we're going to cut into a few numbers here. I'm going to try to keep this to a minimum, but there's, there's a lot here. And I want to go over this because I want to be clear what the problem is. We've defined what the behavior is, but now how often does this happen? Where, how, how often are we seeing this in the big wide world out there? And unfortunately, we're seeing it quite a bit. And it's a growing problem as populations increase and as online behavior uh, and presence increases and as our, de- our dependency on the digital world increases uh, to the point now where we really can't have much of a life or interaction with other people if we don't have a social media or internet presence. Predators and harassers and stalkers know this, and, they, and so we're going to see more and more of this kind of behavior as time goes on. Um, now, again, these sources and methodologies are various and uh, pretty wide uh, ar- array of studies that have been done on this over the years using different methods and different definitions and things. So these uh, numbers and figures are not precise, exact figures. They're generally given in ranges, but uh, we can get some idea of what we're looking at here. Online bullying as a, as a topic or as a subject, according to the Cyber Bullying Research Center, approximately 15 to 20% of youth in the United States have experienced cyber bullying at some point during their lifetime. And a lot of the figures and studies done on cyberbullying skew toward younger people more so than the kind of cyber stalking and digital coercive control behavior that tends to focus more toward uh, adult or mature audiences. But again, lots of overlap here, okay? When we're talking about online bullying, we are not just talking about what teenagers do to each other online. Adults do it too. But studies of that distinct from studies of how adolescents or kids are doing this, you know, not as prevalent. So we have a lot more figures for uh, kids and uh, and adolescents. And so what we get is, um, let's see, yeah, it varies depending on the age group, uh, with adolescents being more likely to experience cyberbullying compared to younger children. Not only is cyberbullying a problem for adults in abusive or toxic relationships, but it's on the rise with the younger generations. And this itself is going to have a downstream effect of, you know, the more bullying and, and harassment that people either experience or engage in, the more they're probably or likely going to engage in those same behaviors later on in their life, unless, you know, some intervention or somebody, you know, steps in and stops it. So since 2002, this is a quote from the Cyberbullying Research Center, so I just thought I'd quote them directly on this. Since 2002, we have surveyed over 35,000 elementary, middle, and high school students in 16 different studies throughout the United States. 
Overall, about 30% of the teens we have surveyed over the last 12 studies have told us that they have been cyberbullied at some point in their life. About 13% out of that 30 said they were cyberbullied in the 30 days preceding the survey. This is all very recent behavior for not half, but almost half of these people. Similarly, about 15% of those surveyed admitted they had cyberbullied others at some point in their lifetimes. So it can go both ways. Um, in 2020, we surveyed 1,034 tweens, uh, 9 to 12-year-olds, across the U.S. and found about 15% of them had been cyberbullied at some point in their lives, and about 3% had cyberbullied others. So this is not you know, deterministic, like, like this is the end of the line in terms of surveys go, but it gives us some approximation of some numbers that we can sort of think with in terms of the problem. And it's roughly one in three people, uh, kids have been cyber bullied at some point. Uh, now, there's some broad facts that can be drawn from all the research. Uh, and again, I'm quoting here from um, the uh research center on this. Adolescent girls are just as likely, if not more likely than boys, to experience cyberbullying um, as a victim and offender. So that's interesting in terms of uh, gender differences. Cyberbullying is related to low self-esteem, suicidal ideation, anger, frustration, and a variety of other emotional and psychological problems. There is no one-size-fits-all reason for why it happens or who who the perpetrators are or who the target is, although we will go into that more in a bit. Cyberbullying is related to other issues in the real world, including school problems, antisocial behavior, substance use, and delinquency. And let's not downplay the use of substances, of drugs, in uh, how prevalent this is. Uh, drugs can often bring out the very, very worst versions of, our, of ourselves. Excuse me. And you find on many, many cases of cyberbullying and harassment that it is uh, drug-fueled rages and, and, uh, and activity uh, behind it. Um, Traditional bullying is still more common than cyberbullying, which is an interesting point, uh, but, but apparently true. And uh, traditional bullying and cyberbullying are closely related. Those who are bullied at school are bullied online, and those who bully at school bully online. Right? The, the, that's uh, not hard to see or figure out at all. All right, so that's that. That has to do with online bullying. All right, and that, again, that's as you can see, a lot of the research is skewed toward uh, the younger generations on that. But when we get to cyber stalking, well, the prevalence of this is more challenging to measure accurately due to the clandestine nature of the behavior and the varying definitions of cyber stalking across studies. And this also makes this a difficult point to research because there is no universally agreed definition of cyberstalking or any of these terms to be honest these are these are sort of roll it as you go we're doing the best we can to sort of you know conceptualize this behavior and then you know and describe it and then uh study it 
a report by the Bureau of Justice Statistics found that an estimated 4.6 million individuals age 16 or older have experienced stalking uh, somewhere uh, when they looked at it from 2006 to 2016 with approximately 60% of stalking incidents involving some form of cyber stalking. So if we look at Again, if we look at uh, with 16 and older, we from 2006 to 2016, they found uh, 4.6 million individuals in this country had been stalked. And of those, 60% involved some online component. The number of federally prosecuted cyber stalking cases has grown steadily since 2014. Um, but we're not talking about a lot of cases of prosecution here, okay? Compared to the number of incidents of it happening, which number in the millions, uh, 2019 had a, had a peak of 80 cases filed uh, for prosecution at the federal level. Uh, and federally, this, is, this becomes a federal matter because of the state lines issue and, and crossing state lines often, and as, as we'll cover, Often, this happens over state lines. So somebody in uh, Virginia can be cyber-stalking or harassing somebody in Nevada. That makes it not just a state issue, but also potentially federal. Um, a total of 412 cases filed between 2010 and 2020. Um, in the majority of federally prosecuted cyber-stalking cases, the victim knew the offender. The prevalence of cyber-stalking versus real-world stalking can vary depending on the sources and methodologies used in the studies. That's where we get the 60%. You know, there's some, maybe some online activity connected with it. It's generally recognized that um, cyber-stalking has become increasingly common, of course, due to the prevalence of digital communications. And many instances of this, of course, uh, are very, very difficult to assess or study because they go unreported. Uh, And there are reasons for that, of course, uh, as well, which we'll talk about. Uh, And then finally, we have here cyber harassment. So we have cyber stalking, and then we have here cyber harassment. But according to the Pew Research Center, around 41% of Americans have experienced some form of online harassment with women and young adults being disproportionately affected. All right. 41% from Pew Research. Um, What kind of effects do these behaviors have on the victims? What happens to people who are at the receiving end of these campaigns. And I call them campaigns because cyber stalking and cyber harassment are not one-offs. You know, you're getting a, a trolling message of insults and and, uh, and personal remarks is not really what we're talking about. We're really talking about coercive control, which is a repeating pattern of behavior, a campaign that is intended to drive the target down and make them feel worse and worse and worse, and perhaps even engage in real-world violence against others or themselves as a result. Uh, That's not always the purpose of the activity, but you'd be surprised how often that comes up. So what kind of effects are we talking about? Well, there can be profound psychological effects, and they can manifest in different ways. Um, 
first off, for cyberstalking and harassment, you can have the fact of anonymity and perpetual presence. Uh, and what I mean by this is perpetrators of cyberstalking and cyber harassment can often remain anonymous and they can create multiple online personas. It's not just one account coming after you. It can be five, 10, 20, all coming from one person. And you, as the target, have no idea, is it one? Is it 20? Is it 10? How many people are out there coming after me? Um, and this can contribute to a sense of helplessness and, and fear. Additionally, online, the online nature of the harassment means that it can occur at any time, uh, leading to a constant feeling of being watched or monitored. One study uses the word spacelessness to describe the fact that cyberstalking, being something that happens in virtual space, can make victims feel even more insecure than if their stalker was someone that they could see or sense in the real world. The spacelessness contributes to the feeling the stalker is everywhere and nowhere, and therefore cannot ever be effectively fought back against. Another aspect of this is the digital trail and permanence Unlike real-world stalking, which may leave physical evidence that can be documented by authorities, cyber-stalking and cyber-harassment often leave a digital trail, and this can lead to uh, feelings of vulnerability and invasion of privacy as victims may feel like they have nowhere to escape from the harassment. So you can have this spacelessness in this, they're everywhere and nowhere and there, and how many of them are there, but you also have this trail that's left online of the harassment, which other people can contribute and feed into, or it can have uh, reputational uh, issues and consequences for the target. Other people are seeing this and thinking, what is this? Why is this happening to this person? Do they deserve it? What did they do? What, what is this? Are, are these accusations being made against them true? What's all that about? And it can create an awful lot of interest in the target and generate more cyber stalking and harassment. Um. Then there is a disconnection from support networks. Victims of cyberstalking and harassment may feel isolated and disconnected from their support networks as they may be hesitant to share their experiences due to the intangible nature of online harassment. Law enforcement and the justice system rarely even believe the victims in the first place. They often don't understand the nature of the problem or the intended psychological consequences of it. Police will often ask the victims why they simply don't turn off their social media or disconnect. Then they fail to understand um, both the dogged persistence of many online stalkers and the ease with which an individual or a group of people can completely terrorize their target without, again, without even having to live in the same state or country. This can happen across the world and still have more of a psychological impact on the victim than if the stalker was standing outside their house all day. It can be that crazy. All right. Um, now, in terms of, now those are some of the consequences or some of the, the psychological or, or um, yeah, mental consequences or, or legal problems with this. There's also the fact of the, that, that often this is combined with real-world activity, too. Uh, 
It's often a combination of things, not just one domain or the other. And so when you bring in real-world stalking and harassment, you have these additional psychological issues and, and consequences. Um, perpetrators may physically follow or surveil their vec- victims, leading to heightened fear for their safety. Victims might, fe- might constantly feel like they're being watched or followed, which can lead to significant anxiety and a condition called hypervigilance. And that is where your fight or flight is tuned up ratcheted up so hard that you, it's never turning off. And this is, this is a uh, key component of things like PTSD, uh, but, you know, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, or complex PTSD when you, uh, when you end up gathering many, many instances of this over time. Uh, here's an incident, and then here's another one, and then here's another one, and then here's another one. And this happens, say, over a year or two years period of time, you can actually develop a a complex PTSD situation just from this. Um, Real-world stalking can disrupt victims' daily routines and activities as they may feel unsafe leaving their home or going about their usual tasks. In fact, One of the purposes of online and real-world stalking and harassment is to create this exact feeling of terror at the very prospect of leading a normal life. The, The manipulators or the predators want the target to feel afraid every minute. And if that's not pathological, I don't know what is. Um... This can lead to social withdrawal and avoidance behaviors as victims may try to minimize their risk of encountering the perpetrator. Now, in terms of why does this happen, um, let's talk about that for a second. What are the justifications for this? You know, I found one study I was, I was fascinated because in Scientology, of course, we always use the word justifications. How did you justify that? And in the uh, study I was reading, one of the term they used for that were the neutralizations. How you know this? The, how do, is it that the perpetrators or or the cult leaders or the the uh, manipulators? How do they uh, neutralize their um, their behavior? How do they make it so that it's okay in their mind that they do what they're doing? And there are a number of reasons for this. Um, it can vary quite widely, and it's not always pathological by any means. Um, you know, but they are engaging in behavior that is harmful every time. This is harmful behavior. When you're getting up to the level where you're calling it cyber stalking and cyber harassment or digital coercive control, you are talking about behavior that is inherently harmful to its target. This is not something that you get a pass for. And unfortunately, the prevalence of it, the, ver- the, the volume of it that happens, makes accountability so very difficult for people. But let's not m- make the mistake of just because it's so common and just because it happens all the time, in other words, doesn't make it okay. None of this is okay. Um, but why does it happen, right? Well, let's take a look at this because understanding the motivations behind this can be useful for developing prevention and intervention strategies and holding perpetrators accountable. Um, okay, so there's number six, ish, six 
various reasons why this might be happening to somebody. Uh, retaliation or revenge is, is number one, right? They may perceive themselves, the, the cyber harassers or the cyber stalkers may perceive themselves as seeking revenge or retaliation uh, because they have been wronged somehow. This could include past romantic partners or colleagues or acquaintances uh, with whom they've had conflicts or disagreements. And sometimes an online disagreement can be the, the simplest, stupidest disagreement can be cause for some of the most egregious behavior as it just gets ramped up higher and higher and higher and things get more and more out of hand. Um, you can have a case, and these these uh, six reasons, by the way, are not all independent of each other. You can have multiples of this in one or a group of people. Uh, number two is obsession or fixation. Um, they may become fixated on a particular individual, often driven by feelings of infatuation or jealousy or possessiveness. They may engage in uh, this stalking or harassment as to maintain a sense of control or dominance over the object of their fixation. And this can go on for years. There was a case of a man who had been jilted by a woman in high school. He had uh, pursued her romantically and she had rejected him. He kept a website on this woman. He stalked her for years. I think something on the order of 10 or 12 years before he uh, went fully uh, pathological and uh, wrote about her. I mean, it was all there, but the law, law enforcement never did anything about it because it was just his rantings and writings on his blog until the day he went out and got a gun and went and killed her and then killed himself. So obsession is absolutely a, a legitimate reason Um a real reason, I don't say legitimate as though it makes sense, but it's a real reason why this happens is, uh, is that. Intimidation or control, of course. Cyber stalkers and cyber harassers may use online harassment as a means of intimidating or controlling their victims. This could include or involve threats of violence or blackmail or other forms of coercion intended to you know, get some result out of the person. Um, and sometimes it's just control for the sake of control. There's no end goal. There's no end target. There's no money or other thing that they're trying to get. They just get off at watching the antics of their target. Attention seeking or notoriety. Uh, some cyber stalkers may engage in their behavior as a way to gain attention, either from the victim or from a wider audience or both. They may derive satisfaction from the sense of power or influence they perceive themselves to have over their victim's life. And again, we see the Venn diagram here of these different things coming together. Uh, number five could be boredom or thrill-seeking. I, I, I find this one particularly egregious simply because it's so non it, it, it's so random it's so heinously random uh just simply driven by boredom or a desire for excitement or stimulation 
This this would be the sort of thing you would see when you're talking about 14-year-olds out of their basements who simply get off on calling 100 or 150 incidents of swatting uh, around the nation, as was recently found in some kid in Florida who's under arrest now. Uh, they tracked him down. I think it was 150 different incidents of swatting uh, that he had called into various schools and mosques and churches and various places because, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is the only reason he did it, but, you know, this immature, almost, again, pathologically immature <laughs> uh, state of mind where, you know, for no other reason than because you find it fun to massively disrupt and even potentially threaten the lives of uh, people uh, over swatting. That's, that's absolutely insane. Um, and then finally, psychological issues, right, which I, I happen to think are prevalent in all of this. I'm not going to say every single person is uh, fully, full-blown disorder or is fully-blown you know, psychosis, but I don't see how anyone could engage in these behaviors repeatedly and not have some degree of antisocial pathology. Uh, you know, that's my opinion. Uh, in some cases, uh, these may they may be underlying psychological issues such as personality disorders, impulse control problems, or unresolved trauma. Um, these issues can contribute to the behavior and may require professional intervention. Uh, never, none of these things are an excuse for the behavior. I don't care how much trauma you have. You never have the right to do these things to anybody for any reason, ever. You just don't. Um, so yeah, so there is that. And those are some of the justifications for why it happened. So then finally, let's take a look at what can it be done about it? Right? What is the best handling for this? Well, obviously unplugging, disconnecting, you know, moving off, whatever, um, might be something to be done. Um, Is that, you know, are any, is there anything that's guaranteed to make this stop? Not really, just because of the nature of it and because of the fact that there can be groups of people that get together to do this. If it's one perpetrator and you put the perpetrator in jail or you somehow restrain them through a restraining order or through prosecution or through fines or some other way, you get them to stop, fine, then boom, it's over. But if there's a group of people and you go after one of them and then you don't, then somebody else comes into the group, then that person is suddenly a new person and it all starts again. And then maybe you deal with them and then another person has gotten in. So this can be a self-perpetuating problem of magnitude for individuals. And, it, and the, the difficulty and stress and trauma that that creates cannot be underestimated. It is well, all the things we've talked about, and as and as the continues, uh, you know, as they continue to be victimized, it can be a real problem. So, can one fight back? Well, um, here are some of the issues: the anonymity and jurisdictional issues. Um, perpetrators often remain anonymous. Or operate from different jurisdictions, right? Like we mentioned, over state lines, over, you know, in different countries even. Making it difficult for law enforcement to identify and apprehend them. Uh, the borderless nature of the internet complicates investigations. Um, 
Yeah, because the laws in other countries or states might even be different. And so trying to prosecute in one location might not be as easy as you might think it is because the perpetrator is in a different location. Uh, Then there's digital evidence collection. Unlike real-world stalking and harassment, which may leave physical evidence like fingerprints or surveillance footage, cyber-stalking and cyber-harassment often leave behind digital evidence, but it requires specialized techniques and tools for collecting and preserving them. Law enforcement may lack the resources or expertise to assist with this. Over time, more recently, there have been professional services popping up uh, with an aim toward helping victims to accumulate or collect that evidence uh, so that they do have a record, a running record digital trail of the harassment or the stalking. Um Okay, the complexity of the technology can also um, you can also sometimes involve the use of uh, sophisticated technology and platforms, social media, email, messaging apps, and investigating these can be difficult for your average Joe or for average uneducated, uninformed layperson who doesn't know how the cyber world works or the virtual world works, and they got to get up to speed on all that just so they can track the you know the behavior um okay then there's the victim reporting and awareness and this also again has been slowly becoming more uh, available for victims over time but there are still it's still very very much in its infancy uh victims may be hesitant to report their experiences also due to fear of retaliation embarrassment or the perception that online harassment is less serious than real-world harassment. Some victims may not even be aware of their legal rights or resources available to them. And then there's the matter of when they do start accumulating evidence or a data trail of, uh, of what's been done to them, they are constantly being re-traumatized by that material. Instead of being able to unplug, they have to plug in even harder and, and dive even deeper into the virtual harasser's world to get all this evidence together. And that can be quite triggering, believe me. International cooperation can become a problem. Uh, We see this also in human trafficking to a great degree. Different countries, different laws, different ideas and cultures um, have wildly different concepts of human rights. And therefore, their legal systems are different. And therefore, trying to bring um, cyber stalkers in Russia or the Ukraine or uh, some other Eastern European nation or China or, you know, something like that. Good luck, right? I mean, you're really going to have some jurisdictional problems and issues uh, and international cooperation issues in trying to pursue any kind of uh, litigation or, or prosecution. And um, and then finally, another issue here is resource constraints, right? What uh, legal, law enforcement agencies may face um, limited funding, staffing shortages, different priorities. Uh, Investigating cyber stalking can require specialized training and equipment, which they might not even have. So there are significant challenges to prosecuting or even investigating uh, any of this behavior. It's hard. And I'm not, I'm going to emphasize that because I don't want anybody listening to this to think it's easy peasy, no big deal. 
to report people, and I don't think anybody thinks that actually, but just in case you do, <laughs> it's not not easy. This, the cards are stacked right now in favor of the cyber stalkers and harassers, and they know that. They know how hard it is to, to prosecute them. They know how hard it is to even find them. And this, unfortunately, because of the way our uh, egos and our moral uh, foundations work, the people, human beings in general, right, the way we work and operate is if we're not in fear of being caught, we are much more likely to perpetrate a crime that we otherwise wouldn't commit if we thought, you know, there was even a slight chance that we would be caught. Um, because it's so easy to get away with this. And again, um, you know, the psychology of the perpetrators can be such that There's no reasoning with them. There's no talking them out of it. There's no dealing with them in any sort of rational way. In fact, um, in any case of this where uh, I've um, consulted or, or been asked for advice on this, uh, yeah, no, uh, trying to make peace or trying to um, you know, have any communication with the manipulators or harassers is almost uniformly a bad idea because uh, any attention directed back in their direction will only incite them to continue and even rev up what they're doing. And this is um, not... Uh, I, I'm not wondering if this is true. I know this is true. This is how it is. So um, so generally, there's not a lot of recourse in trying to, you know, be reasonable and rational and that sort of thing. Uh, you either got to unplug and get away from it entirely and hope that works and that the, um, uh, depending on the circumstances, of course, but hope that the manipulator or the predator or the stalker uh, will move on to some other target or just get bored or whatever because uh, you're not presenting yourself as a very interesting or engaging target. Um, that can be oftentimes, most of the time, the only real strategy left for uh, a victim of this because law enforcement cannot be counted on really to do much of a job with this um, unless you have revved, unless the case is revved up to such a point that the damage is obvious and uh, and provable, and and the evidence is laid out, and a case, a lawsuit, a restraining order, uh, uh, even criminal prosecution, could then be brought against the perpetrators. Okay, so it's 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 basically a road fraught with difficulties. There's a lot of problems and a lot of complications to it. This is the nature of the world that we live in these days. I don't want it to be hard. I don't want any of this to be complicated. That doesn't make me happy to talk about it this way. I want to give people solutions to these problems, but they are difficult, complicated problems as I've laid out here today. And I just wanted to, to go over all of this because, one, it was on my mind, of course, and two, because it's a prominent part of cult dynamics and behavior these days. Mm -hmm. 
This is not disrelated at all, right? We've we, we, we this ties into every cult out there and the digital virtual world. And this is something that we're going to have to put more attention on over time. We're going to have to have more regulations and more laws in place to protect people and their rights uh, to privacy, to individuality, to free from being, you know, to freedom to from being harassed and stalked by bad actors. Nobody should have to endure that. You know, if you have a problem with somebody else online, keep it to yourself. You know, or, uh, or write a blog or something, you know, but, but, but this online stalking and harassment stuff that goes on is for the birds. Um, so that's kind of how it is these days. Anyway, I wanted to put this podcast together, a little impromptu, uh, kind of got a bunch of facts together and delivered them to you. I hope today's episode is somewhat informative and educational, probably not super entertaining, but uh, hopefully informative, and hopefully this information can be considered and used, and uh, maybe uh, other solutions or ideas or tactics for fighting back might exist out there that I'm not aware of or don't know, and if you do, please let me know in the comments to this podcast, either on YouTube or otherwise. Um you know, what your thoughts are on this. I would very much like to hear. This is a problem that is not going away. Uh, and it's an issue that is going to have to be dealt with by our law enforcement agencies and our justice system at some point, uh, taken much more seriously than it has been up to now. And I am very impatiently waiting that day. All right. So thank you very much for coming around and watching this or listening to this podcast, as the case may be. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.